This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello there, and welcome to Thank the Maker, a podcast about heroes, princesses, scoundrels, hokey religions, ancient weapons, and all things Star Wars. Uh, I'm one of your hosts. My name's Adam. Oh, it is Mandalorian week, people, and I'm smiling. I'm your host, Ryan Key. My name is Nick Mandalorian Ganbarian, <laughs> and uh, I'm also your host. It's not a race. It's a creed. <laughs> Good to see you all. Nick Mandabarian. <laughs> Oh, dude, it sure is the week of The Mandalorian Season 2, and I'm so pumped. We just talked about a whole bunch of really depressing 2020 stuff before we hit record. We did. But we did. Ryan's like, hey, man, nope, remember, we're 72 hours out. And we said yes, and the smiles came up, and here we are. It's real new Star Wars. This is a big deal, dude. We have joined forces over the last eight months to have a podcast about Star Wars, and we have new Star Wars coming on Friday. Between Obi-Wan and, like, the Cassian series, whatever animated stuff, like, this is going to be, we're going to have, like, two-month chunks of new Star Wars a couple times a year. So sick. Dude, isn't it crazy that, I, I just, there's a lot of stuff going on, so it hasn't been on my radar as much, admittedly, but it's really hitting me right in this moment. That, like you said, we have new Star Wars. This is something that... For the first time. Yeah. That it's as a, a podcast. Like, if it's a film, it's on my calendar. I've requested three days off work to <laughs> see, see the movie three times in a row. All this kind of stuff. And it being TV, for some reason, it just... It's not as much of an event, like a calendar event, but it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, sh- it should be. Also, you think, like, there's you know, all the podcasts, and we love you all the Star Wars podcast that came before us, you know, that we have joined the ranks of and are in such good company of so many of them got to cover the sequel trilogy in full in real time. We didn't get to do any of that. Everything we've covered has been in retrospect. So really looking forward to starting this, this coming week, you know, next week on the podcast, like just covering live real time Star Wars for everyone. It's really exciting. Eight weeks of being a companion podcast to the Mandalorian. I'm here for it. Hell yeah. Me and my whiskey. <laughs> so this episode, in preparation for season two, will be an overview, a review, a discussion on Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian, the first Disney Gallery series on Disney+. Plus. Hopefully, we'll see season two with this, and who knows what else. I, I, I would imagine the Marvel shows and different things like this will end up on Disney Gallery, but The Mandalorian being the flagship launch title for Disney+, Plus made sense that this was their first sort of a, a really in-depth, like a straight-up docuseries on the making of The Mandalorian. Can I jump in with something that I've been meaning to say every single week that we've covered Mandalorian, season one of The Mandalorian? First of all, I mean, we did touch on it, I'm sure, just how epic it is that a show based on 45 seconds of a film <laughs> yeah. that occurred 40 years ago was the launch program for Disney's streaming platform. It was the single most important project they had out to launch their streaming service. 
This was based on a tiny clip of film from 1980. So that's amazing. I've been kind of chatting with some friends too about this. And it's like, nothing's really come out on Disney Plus besides this. What if Mandalorian tanked? Disney <laughs> yeah, Plus would yeah, have tanked. Yeah, that's what I'm kind of what I'm getting like, at. What a, what a huge risk, dude. Season two is coming out before season one of anything else came out besides like the Jeff Goldblum show or whatever. Right. You know? like, yeah. It's so crazy. And we have to be honest that with ourselves that Favreau is a genius in the writing. I mean, everyone in the room, when the child was presented, that was it. That was it. Yeah. That's where it became less of a dice roll and more of a sure thing. Everyone in the room said, okay, with all the turbulence that's happened with the sequels, which is only natural having the age difference, you know, and in the, the OT and, and the prequels and the sequels, it's, it's just, it's going to happen. That was like this unifying force that I think just jumped off the page. I'm sure of it. The irony that cuteness was the unifying. I know, I know. But all of this said, that's not even the point I wanted to make. I want both of you to just close your eyes and remember when you went into the app for the first time to watch the show and that string run started. And it showed all the different helmets and masks. They were all flashing in the red and blue and gold. And then it just said Star Wars. Like... My hair is standing up on my entire body thinking about it. And, and that was like a tiny, like, intro graphic. But I will never forget being on the tour bus with Newfound Glory the first night we all finally got. It was, we were a few days late just because of shows. And it was late at night. We all wanted to, like, not fall asleep, you know, after a show. So it was probably Sunday when we watched it. And we, we all gathered in the front lounge to sit down, like, popcorn, here we go. And that's the first thing that we saw. And I just, I meant to say something about it every week and I haven't, but that's a Star Wars memory I'll, I will never forget. Is seeing, I wonder who scored that little, that thing that you're talking about. Oh yeah. Could have been Ludwig, huh? I don't know. Someone who gets paid to score, unlike me. <laughs> <laughs> we were on tour and had off and we were in the like Baltimore area. We had a day off and we went to go see Taking Back Sunday at the Fillmore. Solid night. Yeah, I remember the app going live or whenever at midnight and we were in a bar and then it was Baltimore, so it was East Coast. So I don't think it really came on the app for another couple of hours, but Disney plus the app went live, I think at midnight. So we were all just like kept clicking the Mandalorian until it finally let us <laughs> watch it. Yeah. Do you remember the anxiety of the app launching also? Because everything launched at once there was no like yeah. all the apps a week before and then the show so the day before i was like whoa, 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 how, how, how do i get it <laughs> yeah, just yeah. like stuttering like, it was a weird launch yeah, yeah it was a weird launch they didn't crush it <laughs> launching <laughs> no, an app it was a bit playstation 5-ish <laughs> right but nonetheless <laughs> yeah just that opening sequence i just really i've meant to mention it and i haven't and i don't know it's just i felt like a kid you know it was a real it was a kid moment it was like it, it felt as cool as it does sitting in the theater when the Lucasfilm logo comes up, you know, yeah. or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away comes up. It had that impact on my psyche seeing the graphic. So basically also I'm saying whoever at Disney did that project, I want you to know how appreciated you are for this so little good. 10 second, five second, whatever it is, clip that opens the show. You, you absolutely crushed it. And I'm very grateful for your service. And that's going to be, I mean, that is like a defining era. Yeah, I think we'll see that for every show. 
Everything yeah. they do, Star Wars related from now on, the whoever did that holds the same torch that the guy who made the Lucasfilm graphic with the sparkle on it. Yes. They've passed the torch to, to this team. And uh, man, good job, you guys. Good job. Kids are going to grow up feeling exactly as we did for all those other things. Like their world includes that. They're all on the same level, you know? I feel like we might even see it in theaters for new features. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. You know, it could go Lucasfilm and then the Star Wars Disney thing that now precedes Mandalorian and then into a Galaxy phone or, you know, whatever the title card is going to be. But yeah, yeah, I I definitely think it's that iconic and, and I don't think it should just be reserved for the app. Small thing, big credit due. So we, again, are here to talk about Disney Gallery, Star Wars, The Mandalorian, the first eight episode documentary series that, according to Disney Plus, pulls back the curtain on The Mandalorian. Each chapter explores a different facet of the first ever live action Star Wars television show through interviews, behind the scenes footage, and roundtable conversations hosted by none other than Jon Favreau. It's wonderful. I've definitely lately been on a kick of just watching any famous people talk, not just because they're famous, <laughs> but famous people that I'm like interested in, you know, so like Paris Hilton, really, uh, <laughs> Nicole Richie, Perez Hilton. Yeah. Now I've really been like watching like Conan's podcast. I don't know if you guys have messed with that at all, but it is so much better. Like I love Conan for my whole life. He's great. His podcast is unbelievable because it's an hour of one guest and uncensored, like not that he goes blue or anything, but it's just so much more in depth and has that almost in a way that Star Wars does where you you watch it and you get that little kid feeling. Like I was 12, 13 watching Conan. So I like getting back into him. I have like a decade of things to watch, like Conan on TBS stuff. Yeah. And I'm just getting like all this like youthful joy out of it. And he's just hilarious. But that kind of got me into like the Will Arnett, Jason Bateman and Sean Hayes podcast, Smartless. And then yeah. just watching things on YouTube of like successful people talking to each other is I, I just love it. It's so great. The Conan podcast is kind of like the David Letterman show on Netflix, yeah. my, my yeah, next yeah. guest, where yeah, it's yeah. So you're just getting the focus, as you said, on, I haven't listened to the Conan one, but I immediately mm-hmm. thought of that, the idea that you're getting this focus on one guest for the entire show. Yeah, it's great. Um, I think that's killer. And I think it's something I've really enjoyed being on the podcast with you guys when we do have guests on. It's such a cool vibe that it's not just like a guest segment. It's like, yeah. we're really talking with this person for an extended period of time and and getting to know them a little bit, you know, be, albeit through Star Wars, but it's it's rad. So love that. Long form everything is the silver lining of this pandemic, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I hope that this the podcast has been as fulfilling for people who listen to it as it has for the three of us, you know, during this time. All right, let's get into soul and plans. What have you done with those plans? Disney Gallery, Star Wars, The Mandalorian was released on May 4th and then every Friday following. Oh, really? Real original. (laughs) Real creative, guys. Directed by somebody. Written by somebody. But uh, (laughs) most importantly, starring Jon Favreau, the directors, the prop makers, really everyone involved, all the the kind of the big brains. Kathleen Kennedy's in this as well. 30-ish minute episodes. Obviously, this doesn't have the kind of, you know, IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes and kind of whatnots that we talk about with the films but on imdb since there is an entry it is an 8.4 which i think it's very high yeah it deserves this is a fascinating watch i mean really i was late to the party 
it was, it was on a list for a long time, but, um, I kind of have to, I mainline with the schedule. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. But man, I'm glad I didn't watch it back when it came out because to get ready for the podcast, I watched it literally all in one sitting. I just sat there for four hours and watched it. And that was a journey. I mean, not that I need my love of Star Wars to be rekindled. That's not a thing, <laughs> but somehow it did that, you know, like it fanned the flames, I guess is the right yeah, way I mean, to put it. You just see it. how much everyone cares and I'm sure we'll get know, into that man. later, but like, man, any yeah. nerd on the internet who's just like, yeah, they're just throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks. It's like, no man, like they care. And especially on this project, everybody is just so involved and, and into every detail of bringing, like they're keeping us in mind when they make this. Yep. It's great to see. I especially love that Kathleen Kennedy was directly involved and at mm-hmm. the table. Me too. Because for all the haters and even for myself in moments where I, I had doubt, this makes it clear that, yes, she's an executive. She has that kind of like personality type. You can see mm-hmm. it. You can hear it in her voice. But she fucking cares, man. Yeah. And you can see that like even on the things, you know, Favreau talking about how they built the miniature, how they kind of snuck it in almost with the budget mm-hmm. she laughs about it like she's not just someone who looks at a spreadsheet who looks at hard numbers she cares lucas picked her as his successor for a reason and i think it's great so eight episodes episode one is about directing episode two is about the legacy of star wars there's actually some footage with lucas in there three is about the cast episode four is about the technology they used to create this episode five is about the practical effects episode six is about their process, which is actually really interesting Mm -hmm. because it's way different than like a feature film or any other TV production process leading up to this, which we'll talk about. Episode seven is about the score and episode eight about the connections, kind of bringing it all together, all full circle. Did you guys have a favorite one? Like a favorite episode? 100% scoring. Yeah. It's, It's like literally my mission in life. And again, not having watched this or looked into it at all when I got to that episode, I, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> am I watching porn? <laughs> it was so awesome. Disney plus after dark. <laughs> <laughs> Starring Ludwig. Um, yeah, I, that was definitely hands down my favorite to watch the process. It just blew my mind. His talent is holy Lord. That guy had no idea. As predictable as that answer is for you, mine is equally predictable. <laughs> it's of course technology. Yeah, technology for me too. Because it's it's just crazier than... I've been explaining it for months to people. And I did watch the gallery when it first came out. But rewatching it, I just kind of... Rewatching it with purpose of taking notes for the podcast. Like went through it with like a fine tooth comb. And like the technology is just even crazier than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, I'm so glad people are a thousand million times smarter than I am. <laughs> I'm very thankful. This is a project made up of some wicked smart people. <laughs> from Boston. How do you like them apps? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. It's like truly paradigm-shifting, game-changing technology. Just that That's why the, the episode when Lucas comes in is so sweet because you can see Favreau has this like grin on his face like, do you see it? Did, did I do a good job? <laughs> Just like you, Dad. <laughs> what was the scene where, uh, where Favreau's basically saying something to Lucas about like, see, I did this for you, like to do this cool thing. And Lucas is like, no, I, I had nothing to do with that. Oh, no. Oh, it was the uh, <laughs> Boba Fett in the, uh, the animated like short that oh, was in the oh, holiday the, the special. Christmas special. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The rifle. The rifle. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, right. He, and he's like, no, not really. Yeah. That was his answer. Yeah, I didn't write that. Soul crushing. And like, not dude, even try, he didn't even try to be nice. He was just like, oh, I didn't do that. To me, it was the experience of like, I, I was just on Jim Adkins podcast from Jimmy Eat World and I got, I got his phone number like throughout the process. Pretty cool. And like every text I've sent has been like, uh, please think I'm cool. You know? Double checking for typos, punctuation. I feel, just, just thinking like he, like, you know, that you could definitely get the answer of like, um, cool, cool bro. You know? <laughs> and yeah. uh, when you're like, this is so great, man. Thank you. It's such an honor, you know, whatever. But just like, the idea that Favreau sitting there with Lucas was that like firing one of those texts out, like I'm ready. You know, he was waiting all day. He's like, I can't wait to show him this gun. It's going to be the highlight of my time on this project. Cause he's going to be like, wow, you really (laughs) went for it. Like you really understand my vision to find a a nugget (laughs) like that, you know, and then to get a response of no, not really. (laughs) Favreau's like brushing his teeth that morning. Like, so I pulled the, uh, you know, that he's like reviewing his lines with, you yeah, know, yeah. And then rehearsing he just, and get, talking to George in the shut mirror. Down. So shut down. And Favreau's like such a confident dude. He clearly is the f-ing captain of the ship, yep. you know? And in those interviews, he's very like back in his chair. All of his body language is like, I run it. But in that moment with Lucas, he's just looking at him. He's yeah. just like staring at him like a fan. Yeah, you know that's what I'm saying. That that's I, I I sort of relate to that experience. And and like anytime you've met someone, being you know the three of us, like being in bands, and we've gotten to meet a lot of really cool people that we've looked up to for a long, long time. And that's a it's a crazy experience every time. Yeah, Favreau has a moment too, though, with Filoni, right? Where it's something about an empire, and, and Favreau's <laughs> like, that's yes. a deep cut or something like yeah. that. Like even he doesn't know. <laughs> but but I was kind of amazed because it wasn't that deep of a cut. I don't remember exactly what it right. was but, but Filoni is like he's clearly like the dude at the comic book store <laughs> and, like, yes. and Favreau's just like casually walked in to buy whatever like the most mainstream thing is he's like no nah, man that one's lost on me sorry that's that's what he said yeah I forget what it was it was something about Tauntauns oh, yeah, I like, can't yeah, you know an empire when uh he's like pushing <laughs> yeah, up the yeah. bridge of his glasses yeah essentially he's good now that's great that's a deep cut <laughs> so this episode is going to be pretty den of antiquities heavy let's be honest because that's what i mean essentially this whole thing is that's a show about that so let's go ahead and run that right now when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply over a thousand generations it is the dark saber it's a a sith wayfinder dark science cloning secrets only the sith knew welcome to the den it's moist in here it's dank we're here (laughs) nick was nick crushed he put this all together yep we did a little bit of tweaking but appreciate you i basically just did like typed all the closed captions (laughs) (laughs) i just put closed caption on just typed everything. I was like, here's the notes, guys. Copy, paste. <laughs> so we all know from episode four of this, the technology episode, for anyone who hasn't watched this yet, maybe listen to this podcast, maybe pause it right now and go watch all this. <laughs> and then come back. But if you don't want to, if you want the hour version instead of the four hour version, here we go. 
So it's pretty well known that the volume, which is this giant soundstage with wraparound LED screens and ceiling too. Yeah, this like groundbreaking technology that we're talking about. It seems like everything was shot in there, but there were actually a couple other locations, one being a train yard in Los Angeles and then an outside location that was like a back lot. Yeah. At the studio. Yeah, sort of like a almost like an outdoor soundstage because they had it was just kind of dirty and muddy and they had a bunch of blue screens. It was it looked like a like a Marvel set almost. Yeah. You know, you yeah. see a lot of that stuff. The train yard was a big one. And we'll get into the volume, but it I was just gonna say it reminds me of a planetarium. Yeah. yeah. That's that's the vibe. Totally. Where when it's turned on, you're immersed in it and it feels like you're just in outer space because it's three sixty. It's all around you, it's above you, you're you know, you're surrounded by it. So we'll get into like what that means for filming and just mind blowing shit. <laughs> it's like the force. <laughs> so there were a few, a bunch of mentions actually of, of different things from star Wars history in this as well, which is, which is fun. Like Lucas, for example, with all the technology breakthroughs in his time in star Wars, say his time, it's his movies, but in the time before it was handed off, there were actually 126 patents that were created from all the tech that Lucas and Lucasfilm created to make those movies. I had no idea until yeah, I read this nuts. document. Yeah, Kathy, Kathy Kennedy dropped that, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's it's just so much. Decades of patents. Like, hey, what, what's the phrase? Like, necessity is the mother of invention. You yeah. know, it's like that's George Lucas to a T. You yeah, know? Like, story of we, Star Wars. I need something we don't have yet. We have to invent it. I'm sure that's to date, too. It's like that's just for now. I mean, yeah. you <laughs> know, I mean, every one of those is being was used or as they evolved, continue to be used by other people. And I'm, I'm sure that's still a huge focus of what ILM does is just patenting cool shit that mm-hmm. no one's thought of. I wonder if motion control period was patented by them. You know, the idea of like you run a camera move once, you do it again with a different person in the shot, a different element in the shot, that computerized sort of digitally controlled camera movement. Did they invent that? Dude, I, I mean, if you go back and watch Empire of Dreams, I mean, it seems like all all that stuff, all all the miniature work, all the the way they were were filming explosions and and lasers, and I mean, no one had done anything like it, dude. So I mean, that, and that's all stop motion versions of stop motion photography and stuff. So hmm. I think the most mind blowing thing when watching Empire of Dreams, and it evolves to where we are today with the Mandalorian, is is the cameras. I mean, they they invented cameras. They were like. Mm-hmm. We don't have a camera that can capture lasers, so let's just make one. You know, it's nuts. Speaking of miniatures, one little tidbit, not Mandalorian related, that they did say in the show is that uh, The Phantom Menace has the most practical miniature effects of any Star Wars film. So you wouldn't think that because you think prequels, Mm -hmm. you just think green screens. But yeah, they kind of went nuts on episode one with practical miniatures. I didn't realize until watching this that the stadium for the pod racing was, that's real. That's that's a real set. So cool. Painted Q-tips <laughs> for the fans. And that big, uh, that donut with the bike cut out, you know, we talked about in that episode. That's a big-ass miniature. That thing's like a good, yeah. like, three, four feet wide. No. The look of The Mandalorian was inspired by The Man With No Name, a Clint Eastwood movie. The hat brim, down kind of over the eyes look, the poncho, the spur sound, all of that. That gunfighter iconography heavily influenced this. And the coolest part about that I love is that Favreau talks about how he didn't know any of that stuff. You know, being a dude who was born in like the 60s, right? He, Mm -hmm. I mean, when he was a teen is when Star Wars came out. So that was his stuff. He went back and learned about Westerns and about samurai movies and everything via Star Wars. So it's cool that 
it's like we've talked about in episodes past, like you listen to your favorite band, you want to sound like them. So you go back and listen to who they grew up on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He says it pretty explicitly that they went and watched Westerns and Kurosawa instead of being influenced by George, they went and exactly what you just said, went and watched George's influences. So much better. I liked hearing him talk about all that because it was like, not that I think there's any reason why everybody else didn't notice all of that on their own. I'm not saying like, I figured this out, but I just remember watching it the first time and immediately connecting with the Western immediately. Like just mm-hmm. from the first shot of the first episode, I was like, oh, first few notes the of soundtrack, the score. Yes. Everything about it. I was like, this is the high noon, dude. This is mm-hmm. the gunslinger from the dark tower. I mean, this is like Western Clint Eastwood, all that John Wayne, you know, so hearing him talk about it, cause it, it, there wasn't anything I'd really read before interviews or anything with him that made me go like, oh yeah, he based it all. So hearing him talk about it in the gallery about like, yeah, that's what it was. I was just kind of like, I really like film. I like watching film <laughs> and studying film and analyzing film. And because I immediately thought about Westerns from the, the onset of the, as you said, Adam, the first note of the score. So funny enough, you just said John Wayne, yeah. this doesn't matter, but, uh, maybe related. This is how my brain works. Yeah. The two stuntmen, Brendan Wayne and Latif Crowder, Crowder? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did most of the physical work as the Mandalorian. So in the suit. Wayne, Brendan Wayne, did most of the gunslinger type stuff. Definitely related. Gotta be. There's no other explanation. <laughs> and Latif did more of like the uh, the fighting type scenes, the jujitsu influence fighting scenes. So cool that they found guys to do those two things. Like this dude can like spin the revolver and I always think about like the sickest thing in Westerns that you know, and you know, I'm right. The sickest thing, coolest in any Western. They always do it, especially in like newer ones where it's really high quality. Dude, the, the ham, the, the, like you oh, hear yeah, my yeah. hand, like hitting the hammer, all six rapid, shots, just cut, yeah, cut, 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 because it makes the trigger pull faster. If you hit the hammer, if you pull the hammer back, you know, you get a quicker shot off instead of having to pull the trigger to make the hammer go. That's why they cock the gun. You always wonder in movies, why the hell are they cocking the gun? Well, there actually is method to that madness. If you cock a weapon, the trigger pulls back so it fires faster. So in a Western, when a dude is just hammering the, the hammering pin in the back, it's, I love that. And then, and then we have like a martial arts fighter, like an MMA dude. It just is amazing that they melded those two guys into one character and it was seamless for the whole season. Yeah, I didn't expect that at all. I thought Pedro was in the suit the whole time. I did too. No. When I watched the show, I thought it was him the whole time. I mean, you assume stunts, like, you know, dangerous stuff. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. the fact that there was so much other stuff is pretty amazing. And I think we mentioned this before, like the fact that all of the the mask work, you know, like as you refer to it, that takes real talent. That's not just a stunt person who's good at falling off a building. That's somebody who really knows how to use their body to to tell the story and to, to sell the bit. Well, one of my favorite things in this series is when they talked about specifically the body and mask work of the actors in the suit, how actually utilizing stillness was the most effective thing. And you don't really think about that when you're watching it. But if you hear me speaking on this and you haven't seen the gallery and you, for some reason, don't go watch the gallery after we sell you on it tonight, watching the Mandalorian again, think about, try to notice how still they are with absolute chaos erupting around them at all times. It makes it so that each movement the actor makes with their hand or their head or their torso matters. 
on such a massive scale because everything around them is so intense and they are so still that you're going to notice those movements. So that was definitely by committee, you know, all directors brought in together to say, this is something we're going to keep as a through line for every episode as a team. And they talk about that. And I think that's just killer. So Deborah Chow, you know, mentions that and in, in her quote from the gallery just says, working with the actor to use physicality. So it's just even the littlest head turn. A lot of it was about stillness, which was about like staying very, very still when something significant happens. So you can feel that everything stopped for a moment so that when there's a gesture, it's a very meaningful gesture. It's yeah. kind of like don't move unless you have to. So when you do move or you do point or you do kick, punch, whatever it is, it's meaningful because it's coming from a very like still and quiet place. This just made me think too about how opening the show tonight when we were talking about Disney kind of rolling the dice on let's let's do a, a show based on 45 seconds of film that's 40 years old and see if anybody gives a shit. Also, the lead character is going to wear a mask and hardly move yeah. unless they're in a fight scene for the entire <laughs> season. I mean, it's just crazy. It's crazy. His key characteristic will be stillness. Yeah, I love. <laughs> well, but- they were talking, uh, I think, Rick Famuyiwa's episode, which was number two, I want to say. Love him, man. He was directing Mando, Kuil, Jawas. Like, he was directing no human people. You right. know, like he, right. <laughs> and he was just like laughing about it. I think he finally, when he got to film Jawas, he was like, all right, finally, like people that are moving, you know, it's not like an animatronic or whatever Yoda puppet with Mando's stillness. He, he was like excited to direct humans. I loved him coming in and, and being like, so this is what it's like when you have money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he brought yeah. such a cool dynamic from that indie film world. Yeah. Pedro Pascal, though despite not being in the suit all the time, not doing stunts. He was doing his own personal stunts, I guess. Uh, <laughs> he walked straight, in, straight into a piece of plywood coming out of his trailer that caught him like right in the bridge of the nose. Yeah, it's like a classic, you think it's fake. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, you, did you break your nose in the movie? Right. Cut. I mean, it's right across his nose. Seven stitches. That like skin hanging off of it and all that shit. Like, I, the other night, watching i was like oh so the stitches were definitely after the shooting he was like let's shoot this shit and then he went to the hospital yeah must you would assume because that looks yeah it's mangled in the shot oh god it makes my butthole clinch you know the thought <laughs> of, like, you know that thing like i always think about this you get cut with a knife it cuts the skin but if you yeah. have a cut from an impact that means it ripped your skin open yeah. So right. gross. Like it exploded it <laughs> yeah oh the pressure from inside your body going against the pressure from outside your body, exploded. Uh, so in the scene when he takes off the helmet, there it is. Yeah, right on the bridge. Is, that's an actual wound. Well, was, it, um, is, uh, fake. was it Was it, Was it? it Bryce Dallas Howard who was like, they did an amazing job. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember who it was, but one of the directors, or, or maybe it was Gina Carana, who was like, they did an amazing job on the makeup. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm actually gushing blood from my face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Grief Karga, originally, the character was going to be in chapter one and three and then be killed off and was going to be an alien in prosthetics. But you can't put Chubbs in yeah. prosthetics. <laughs> That's you can't a great, put Apollo great in prosthetics. Great segment on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I mean, that dude, veteran actor, amazing actor. I didn't realize how much like he seemed like like a student of film. You know, like I know he's a director here and there, and like, but you really only know him from like these 80s action type things not necessarily like for his skill as an actor but he really does come across as like the most uh 
studied actor, actor studied yeah. actor out of everyone i love seeing that kind of thing when like i had the exact same thought you kind of pigeonhole someone into a type of role and you realize this is a person who thinks a lot yeah. about what they're doing mm-hmm. it almost makes the roles that they play you appreciate those performances more because the real person is such the opposite of the machine gun firing like yeah. juice head that they played in a role you know who who is it on the on the show that in the gallery that across the table you know just really lays it down about how epic it was to work with him it's gina gina yeah, that's right gina yeah it's does, gina carano yeah. right she talks about how director brought her over pulled her to the side i don't remember which director of which episode it was but one of them brought her over to say hey because she, you know, she, this is the first really big acting thing she's done. And so, uh, you know, I feel for that as far as like she was literally learning on the fly on a, on a multi-million dollar Disney Star Wars project. No pressure. And and cool because, you know, Favreau was just like, she's the one. She's the person to play the role before she even like read for it or anything. He just had her in his mind as the person. But, you know, gets pulled aside to say, watch him. Watch this. Watch this take. And and I'm saying this honestly from a place of like my love of what they do and growing up until age 20 when I dropped out of college to join a rock and roll band instead of pursue my entire life's dream of doing theater and film. And I just quit that overnight. That scene moved me to my core because I just, all those memories came flooding back of, of theater of class and my teachers and scenes and learning and scripts and everything that comes from the simple line of watch this. I immediately was able to think about every scene I ever read, every actor I was in the presence of, every scene partner I ever had, everything I learned about. In acting, your 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 scene partner is the most important thing. That's it. Not the script, not the camera, not the makeup, not the way you look, not the way your body moves. It's the other person. That's the most important thing. That's if And if you are true to that, your performance will be mind-blowing. So it really just brought me back to school and and how much I loved learning about theater and acting and imagining what it must have been like for her to have that level of greatness in front of you as like, hey, watch this and learn, kid, you know, and she was so humble and gracious about that all. It, it was cool to be open about that being like, and I soaked it up like I was stoked for someone to be like, let me show you how this is done. It was just amazing. Can you imagine at that time in theater having something like a 75 foot diameter LED wall around you and above you? No. And so whenever you want to get into that, if that's next, I would love to talk about that for a minute. It is. Here it is. The volume, (laughs) which was the video wall that provided all of the set extension, all the backgrounds that made it feel like we were really in locations where we were really in Tunisia for the set of Tatooine or we were really anywhere. It's this amazing handful of technologies that Favreau and the team brought together to create this thing that Disney now calls the volume. Yeah, I really loved watching his like brief history of it where he was working on the Jungle Book and he started to mess with like real time fake lighting instead of adding the lighting digitally later. Right. And then the same thing in The Lion King. So it's something that, you know, was probably six, seven years in the making where he kept taking that next step to make things look more real and then finally just convince lucasfilm to front the bill on on his major project and it's going to be used from now on yeah definitely not just in super big action big budget sprawling landscape it'll be downtown new york it'll be london it'll be paris 
It'll be rom-coms and dramas. It's going to be a technology that is adopted by the entire industry. And I say that because watching the gallery and, and hearing the directors and actors both speak about working in the volume. I talked about this somewhere in our Mandalorian breakdown about how our experience as actors is, you know, we have what is called the fourth wall. So if you're on stage or there's a camera in front of you, that's your fourth wall, right? The other three obviously are, are not figurative. They're literally there. You see them on camera. Right. So what's in front of you is the fourth wall. And that is the landscape, Tatooine, the aliens around you, the spaceships flying above you, the whatever it may be, or take it to a simpler setting like London or Paris or whatever. A lot of times you're on a soundstage or you're in a theater in New York and you're supposed to be standing underneath the Eiffel Tower or you're supposed to be, you know, in Times Square. And you have to, as an actor, create all of that for your own reality. You know, you have to make your own reality so that when you're looking out through this fourth wall, the audience believes what you're seeing. And I mentioned something about how this is an absolute game changer because as an actor, I mean, as a film actor, you no longer when you're, if you have the opportunity to film this way, have to imagine the fourth wall. Mm -hmm. It's done. It's gone. You're not cheating. You're not like, oh, this is easier now. You, you just get to be in the environment that you're yeah. filming in. And that is absolutely, you, you can't get your mind actually around how groundbreaking this is going forward. So performances from mediocre performers are going to elevate to good. Mm -hmm. Performances from good performers will go to great. And performances from great performers will go to a level we've never seen before. Yeah. You put a Meryl Streep or a Robert Redford or an Anthony Hopkins in the volume I can't imagine what is good to Tom Hanks, yep. uh, Matt Damon, Matthew McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey, Christian Bale, Elizabeth Moss, Judy Dench. Take these Academy Award winning performers and put them in a room where instead of the director being like, all right, this is what's going on. And I think it probably is better for these type of sort of fantastical films and things where it's really out of this world for you to imagine what you're seeing. But, you know, think, yeah, think of like Ryan Gosling and Robin Wright Penn and Harrison Ford in Blade Runner 2049 mm -hmm. instead of going, okay, this is, there's a tree out there and it's like, the entire existence of your species relies on what's buried underneath this tree. Now it's just like the tree is there, dude. Like yeah. you are performing going, holy shit, the impact of that tree could not be more real on my performance and my, the soul of my character and the fate of our species. That's huge, dude. It's huge. I can't wait to see. Carl Weathers uh, mentions that, like, I think he's saying when they're in the boat on the lava river, yeah. that you're all, everyone that was in that boat was all looking at the same thing and the teamwork that it took to bounce off of each other, that they're all looking at the same thing. They're not imagining the end of the tunnel. Gina is thinking of it one way. Mm -hmm. Carl Weathers is thinking of it another way. Whoever's in the Mando suit thinking of it another way. Like the fact that they all see the same thing makes the scene more cohesive. And that's exactly what you're talking about. It's amazing that you you bring that up because I honestly hadn't even thought about that. And I, I know he mentioned it, but the concept of the ensemble. And, and mm -hmm. that, that's a big deal because you, you deal with that and you'll be in a scene, you know, I never got to do any film work, but in theater, you'll, you'll, you'll be in a scene and with four other people and you have that conversation of like, are you sure? But like, it's, it's this, right. You know, <laughs> right. and if the director and the producer gets to decide, which they should, that's their job. It's not your job. Cause they do, they, the director comes to tell you, this is what the tunnel looks like. This is what you're seeing. It's not just like you're in a lava river, go. 
You know, like right. whoever's directing that would have said, okay, there's stormtroopers at the end. IG-11 is going to get out and be destroyed, sacrificing himself. Well, you're all like imagining that in different ways. You said, Nick, and I never even thought about the potential for what this does for the ensemble. It's, yeah. it's just crazy, dude. This this technology, I think, is an absolute paradigm shift for the f- entire film industry. Dude, and you think about, we're skipping ahead a little bit here, but all, there's so much prep work. There's so much pre-visualization becomes the framework for the whole thing then becomes what the actors know as the world then becomes what they're performing against in the world. And I can imagine this actually even extending to animated stuff where voice actors are looking, I assume they're already looking at previs as they're voicing anyway, but you imagine like if they immerse them, why wouldn't you just go shoot the voice in the damn volume? You know what I mean? Like really put them in there as an ensemble. Ashley talked about on our show, Ashley Eckstein talked about, how Filoni would come in and do this 15-minute spiel on what this is about, why it matters, and everything. Imagine if he could do that minus all of the stuff about, here's what you imagine seeing. Instead, it's just like, here's what you need as a character. Everything else, just look at it. Yeah. yeah. Everything else is going to affect you and your character the way it will naturally affect you. Man, it's... I think to me, like I said at the top of the show, like what I didn't quite grasp at first when I knew about the technology, I didn't understand this like game engine parallax effect. I thought that mm-hmm. there was just a scene in the background and people were acting against it, almost like as if it was a play. Yeah, no. But there is this technology that truly you could see clips of it because it's like a second camera filming the camera filming the scene where you see the background changing as if you're in a video game, according to, I'm sure there's some sort of like GPS location thing in the camera. Yeah, like relative to your position. Exactly. So the camera is filming and as Mando is walking, the background is moving and changing according to the angle of the camera. That to me fried my brain. I was just like, I (laughs) cannot believe it. (laughs) It's insane, dude. It's a video game controller in your hand as a camera Mm -hmm. operator. It's insane. Yeah. The stuff in the foreground relative to the actor, relative to the stuff in the near background, relative to the far background, you know, just like, you know, you do the thing where you hold your finger in front of your face and you close one eye and the other, then the other, you know, the old Wayne's World camera one, camera two, you see (laughs) the shift of your finger. That's the best sort of real world just demonstration of parallax that the thing close to you shifts relative to the background so mm-hmm. they've done this thing you know with rear projection forever for decades since the beginning of filmmaking but to make it look really real the objects have to move relative to each other mm-hmm. so they're not all just on a flat plane in the background they exist in 3d space and that's all happening like nick said with a game engine assuming that the whole world is three-dimensional and things exist relative to each other it's one of those things where it's hard to really understand unless you think really hard or you're there in the spot. You know what I mean? Yeah. One thing that I think is cool, and I don't know if this is just Favreau being like a cool guy or maybe there was just a legality to it all. The volume is not proprietary at all. It's yeah. all existing technology that came together to create this. Mm-hmm. So there was maybe there was no way for them to trademark it or anything like that. But just the fact that it's not proprietary just means more people are going to have more ideas to expand upon it. And it's yeah. just going to get better and better, like exponentially. There's actually a dude I follow on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, everywhere. He's a cinematographer who worked with Unreal in the development of this technology and is now working on his own thing. It's a it's a game, technically, air quotes. It's like a PC game, technically, but it's a, it's a full previs app, 
essentially. It was a really robust piece of software where you can take like preset like characters. Like I need a dude, I need a girl, I need it to be in this kind of building with this outside. And you drop all those characters in, you build out the whole thing and then you control these characters and move around and you could do it with a controller. You can do it in a VR headset. You can do it uh, with a green screen background. This dude's developing this whole thing. And again, it's just off the shelf technology using like HTC Vive headset trackers. He's using a normal shoulder rig, but one, he's got a camera. The other, he's just got a controller. It's like, just like Favreau's doing, it's like the convergence of all this stuff that, and, and Favreau mentions this, it's all technologies that weren't, they weren't aiming at the same end goal, but they all converged in this way where it's like, oh, we can finally do this now. I'll grab it all and put it together. And it yeah. did take something huge like the Mandalorian to be able to spend the money to bring it together. But now that it's happened, like everything else, it'll just get cheaper and cheaper. To bring it back to Star Wars, they talk about in the show, and Favreau talks about how a lot of this was like Lucas was talking about these types of things back in the 70s, mm-hmm. talking about immersion and, and filming, you know, how, how do we think about the Rancor scene and, you know, that there's a lot of that blue screen stuff that they were doing super early on was so cutting edge. So it, this is such a huge end result of visions he had 45 years ago. I think that's yeah. so sick. And I was going to say something else to move on. We can move on. I think we've we've <laughs> fanboyed on the volume plenty, but... I think the craziest thing is that they're filming film. The inception that the volume is, is Mm -hmm. crazy that what you're seeing is just what's on the screens in the, like they're filming screens of stuff. The pixels are so dense that they can film screens in real time with cameras. You, you remember anybody out there like it's getting better now as pixels get higher on your TVs and your cameras, it's, it's starting to be the same concept. But if you ever remember like filming uh, your, your computer screen Mm -hmm. with your phone in the early days and it would like scroll, you know, the light would kind of like, right. Because of the refresh rate. Well, in the volume, it's so 8K or whatever they're at with the pixel density that they're filming film. And that's what you're seeing in the show. And that is just so mind-blowing to me. There are, It's not post. They're not going like, okay, let's drop in the mountains behind them now. They're just filming the mountains that they rendered. Yeah, it's, like you, it's like Inception, like you said. It's film inside of film. One quote from Kathleen Kennedy that I thought was awesome. Well... There's a Bryce Dallas Howard quote, and then Kathleen Kennedy kind of echoes this a little bit. This is like George's garage. There's, I guess, now a famous within the circle quote from George Lucas talking about 20, 30, 40, whatever years from now, you'll be able to make an entire movie in your garage. And the volume is George's garage. Bryce Dallas Howard talks about walking in, looking around, thinking, oh my God, this is it. This is it. Everything we want to make, we can make right here in this one room. I'm telling you, man, paradigm shift. The entire film industry will be different from 2019 going forward. It only gets better. How odd is it timing-wise? You know, like yeah. this needs to be. Oh, right. It's perfect. You don't have to go to locations Invented anymore. Invented and ready to go right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. That's some bizarre coincidence. Nick, way to find the bright side, brother. <laughs> Appreciate that about you. Nick, <laughs> the silver lining Gambarian, as he's known. <laughs> That's a, I've always been just a shining beacon of, of Nick, positivity. the silver lining Mandalorian. Ask anyone you know about me. <laughs> All right, let's try to cruise through. I mean, there's, this is an endless den of antiquities, but we're going to cruise through some of these. The... Technology being the focus of this, it's funny that, again, there's just irony everywhere. They actually use so much practical puppeting, uh, makeup, all kinds of things. I loved it. One of the same. One of the big ones was Quill, 
the prosthetic, the face, everything was animatronic on top of an actor, an actor named Misty Rosas, but voiced by Nick Nolte. So you've got various puppeteers on the sidelines with controllers like Doc Brown. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. You know, real like legit kind of radio control looking controllers doing all the facial expressions, but you've got an actor in the suit and then you've got a voice after all to make this believable and feel tangible within the world again rather than just doing full motion capture same thing with the child like someone was off screen controlling the ears and the eyes the mouth Mm -hmm. facial expressions so that seemed pretty like they've had that technology for a minute you know like but it just keeps getting smaller and more articulate but it's still just like a rc car remote it looks like the the actual remote itself looks almost like uh what do they call in star wars where they make something look more fancy ghibli greebly yeah. Greebly? Yeah. It's got Greeblies it's all over. It's almost like the, these remote controls almost look like they're like old school Greebly remote controls. They they don't look like they're quite... Looks like the remote controlled car I got in 1989 yeah. for Christmas. Yeah. Same stuff. I loved that thing, dude. I would rip that little thing out in my cul-de-sac just flipping it, you know, turning <laughs> it so hard it would flip. <laughs> so fun. They also did, speaking of old technology, the Blurgs. You know, they had like these kind of saddle things with the actors were on. They had to put the blurgs under those they did with cg but they referenced the look of the stop motion stuff and matched that which is cool i love that fact that fact is so good was it in this where they talked about how they they were trying to match the look of like the old yeah stuff right like yeah, um, uh, the walkers it, and stuff like that uh-huh, exactly yeah the, the dude uh hal hickle is the animation director it just shows you when we go back to like the people who make Star Wars care so much. And he basically dissected what makes Star Wars Star Wars, you know, like what makes it look like aesthetically Star Wars, what makes it sound like Star Wars, all this stuff. So he basically was the best example is like if we just did a CGI walker and it was all, walked all smooth. It wouldn't be Star Wars. You mm-hmm. had that stop motion kind of like, I don't know if stutter is the right word. A little jerky like, kind of like. Yeah, yeah. It's part of it's, its physicality. Exactly. So that's Star Wars though. You know, in our all of our brains, that's Star Wars. So why wouldn't you duplicate that now? Yeah. Even though you have the technology to make it look more smooth, that jerkiness of it is Star Wars. How cool is it that these mechanized war machines have characters? You yeah. know, yeah. That, that Lucas and, and that technology by design or by accident, created a physicality for these machines, mm-hmm, you know, that mm-hmm. we are familiar with. And you would never think that, but I guarantee if we had watched it, you know, and I, and I, I go back to thinking that some of that was lost in the prequels because Lucas had this new technology to work with. And yeah. I think that as many filmmakers in the nineties were doing, they, they were just running a little too fast with it, lost some of that charm. And I think if we had seen an ATST in the Mandalorian, that as you said, was like smooth, we maybe not would have nailed it as far as like, what's weird, but it would have felt weird. Right. Yeah. You know? And so again, by design or by accident, the original trilogy of star Wars is just, it's, it's fucking, yeah, his- I'm going to cry. It's so good. Hal Hickel's like kind of quote about it was he wanted to see if the choices were intentional at the time or limitations of the technology. And I'm sure it's the limitations, but that helps our little, our little kid brains take it in as Star Wars because of the way it looks. Yep. There's also a subtle psychological thing going on because we're such a visual species and they talk about this a little bit. I'm into super nerdy podcasts about technology and especially filmmaking and things like this. And I'm always watching YouTube clips, behind the scenes stuff, visual effects and everything. And there are things that because we're a visual species, 
We can't articulate what's wrong with something, but we know something's wrong. The uncanny valley of, "Eh, it looks like a human, but that's definitely not a human. Or that looks like a person jumping a motorcycle over a train, but that's not real. We don't understand physics, but we feel when it's wrong, when the physics are off. And there are certain things like, I mean, you look at any Michael Bay movie or any like kind of modern action movie where they do these camera moves that are literally impossible. They go swooping by something. They go into like the corn video for what do you call it? Freak on a leash, like made that famous, like the bullet time thing. You know, you're going through like a whole of event. I'm thinking bad boys too. like go in the whole event and then down the thing and then out impossible camera moves. They're novel, but ultimately they're just like crap. (laughs) They're shit ultimately. So Favreau instead referenced a lot of Lucas's stuff and the other, um, the other effects what was the one dude, John Noel. And then the other dude there in the one episode, they talked about Lucas's cuts that he did to show the editors. Hey, here's what I want the dog fights to look like in a new mm-hmm. hope. It was actual world war two footage, old war movies and all that stuff at the time, because it was forties and fifties was shot by other planes in the air, flying along with the planes or cameras mounted to the planes themselves. And that created a style, and then that translated to Star Wars because Lucas said, here's what I want it to look like. Match this. I've always loved watching that scene. Uh, I don't know the film, the World War II film or films that he cuts to the, the Death Star mm-hmm. uh, attack in uh, you know the Battle of Yavin in A New Hope. But every time I see that, because that's a classic, like the gallery is not the first time we've seen that mashup. Right, right. It's mind-blowing. It's literally, he's just ripping it. He's straight up ripping it off. I mean, it's shot yeah. for shot. But so sick. But he did that with the music too. We've we've definitely covered that. But he did yeah. that. He definitely gave very specific references to John Williams. Yeah. But it's like now, like a person would do a mashup edit and they put it on YouTube. But Lucas <laughs> did a mashup <laughs> edit of his own and gave it to his editors. Lucas and said, invented YouTube and mashups. Right, right. <laughs> That's one of his 126 patents. Right. <laughs> <laughs> mashups patented by Lucas. So Favreau learned a lot from that. And learned from Top Gun as well. He references what he did in, you know, as a director of Iron Man. Even on the Iron Man suit, it was fully CG, but they positioned the CG cameras in a way where it feels like it had to have been shot in real life. You know, it's right on the hip of Iron Man, or it's right on the wing of the plane, or right on the fuselage of the starship. And it just adds this like subconscious sense of realism that's so dope and again being like the top gun head that i am i I love it so much like seeing that like the wing like right in the foreground and then seeing like the nose of the plane off in the distance that like really close little wide angle shot it feels so good i love it we talked about the previs covered that i don't think it really like just really quickly for someone who's listening that doesn't get into the the tech stuff as much as we do I don't think we actually kind of spelled out. And if you're not going to watch the gallery, you're just going to listen to Thank the Maker, what previs is. Oh, yeah. Previsualization. So this show, more than kind of anything that Disney or Lucasfilm has done in the past, was all about preparation. So using something like a game engine or storyboards or sketches or rough animations to block out every scene, compose every scene uh, in terms of like what you would see in the frame, what the actors were doing to a degree that really like, like Pixar's done this for a lot of years, which helps them tell stories better. They can watch the whole thing ahead of time with kind of placeholder dialogue. You see the whole movie, you see the whole episode. 
It's like a demo of a song. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a rough draft of a story. So you can listen to the song a bunch of times and decide what's right and what's wrong about it and change stuff as you're demoing. Yeah. So it's like a cartoon, for lack of a better word. It's an animated, it's it's CG. So think Clone Wars, video Mm -hmm. games. It looks like that. It's an animated version of whatever you're doing to like see it play out. A demo tape. It's just wild. (laughs) A demo tape. But they did it in full for every episode. And I loved hearing the directors talk about what a game changer that was to basically not have storyboards, but just have the show, you know? Right. And therefore their job of just directing the actors was their sole focus because mm-hmm. they were quickly able to look at a at the previs that was approved and go, no, the shot doesn't look like we need to move this to make it look like mm-hmm. that. Done. Quick moving on and they were able to just focus on and that's a uh, dude i think that's why the acting in this this show is is on the level that it's on and you have someone like gina carano who's never done anything acting wise on this level that her performance is brought up to this level i mean the directors were able to spend so much time with the actors because they had the volume to just dissolve any notion of fourth wall and as i described and now and also just able to be like okay does a shot look exactly like that because that's exactly what John wants it to look like. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Moving right. on. One thing they, they said too, I think it was Deborah Chow, was like, there's so much prep that the everything that you would do in post is like the you have a longer lead time and, a, and less time afterwards until it's actually ready. So I think that that helps to keep things like on schedule. Like right now, Mandalorian's actually like, I, I think it started in November last year. We're getting it like a couple of weeks early. And they say that season three is also like, on schedule right now. So yeah. as long as everything's prepped and pre-viz and you have the volume, like I think there's so much preparation that the post is a lot shorter now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when they're done filming, there's not that much more to do. Mm-hmm. Or no, I mean, I have no clue, but there's a lot less well, relative to, do. to <laughs> relative what it to what it used to be. Yeah, yeah. There's still a shitload to do, but not to not what it used to be. It's it's mm-hmm. think about the the look of this show, like the consistency of the color correcting, you know, things that I think they were able to spend more time on for an episodic television show than you've ever seen before because yeah. everything was already in the camera. They didn't, there were the, the CG and the green screen. There was so much less of that because of the volume and the previs. Yeah. You think about this compared to something like Avengers Endgame. You straight up can't pull off this show doing it like a feature film, yet it looks like a feature film. I was actually talking to the video dude who's doing, because we have this in the story of the year live streams, we have this huge video wall behind us. And we're doing a lot of prep work for this in a similar way. And he didn't know about any of this technology with the location tracked cameras and the, the volume and all this kind of stuff. He's like, man, and that's cool if you got a bunch of money. And I'm like, yeah, but think about it. I mean, it's like the old saying, proper planning prevents piss poor performance. You front load everything and then everything after that is easier and cheaper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, the only reason they can do this is because they can do it ahead of time. But as I've said in this segment, this is going to translate into feature film in a big way. 100%. Yeah. But, but it's amazing to think that the volume is basically a high tech, futuristic 2020, where the world of tech we live in now, version of like an 80s sitcom set. It's why sitcom <laughs> sets looked so shitty. It's because yeah. they didn't have the money that a feature film had to buy a house to shoot in, yeah. you know, or to build a house with the walls removed where they needed, the fourth walls removed, as you say, to, to shoot through. This was just like a TV set. That was the thing. It's like, okay, we can't go out and do all this stuff on the budget of the $250, $500 million Star Wars film, you know, so what are we going to do? 
it looks as good or better, dude. It like yeah, this holds up against anything in the sequel trilogy uh, visually mm-hmm. to me, and it costs a fraction. Crushes the prequels. Crushes the prequels, and it's a fraction of the cost. Yeah, and I I just think it's going to leave episodic television very quickly and move over. I mean, it will stay there, but I just mean um, it will it will graduate Overflow to film into the others. Yeah, quickly. Yeah. All right, we we got to get moving here. Um, there's a few left, just little fun stuff. Nick, you want to rattle these off? Yeah, these are all like pure den of antiquities, little facts. The uh, Incinerator Trooper, if you haven't, uh, if you're not familiar, was with the uh, debuted in a, a Force Unleashed video game back in the day, which is pretty cool. They didn't just make that up; they pulled it from somewhere. The R5 looking uh, astromech that was in the Mos Eisley Cantina, I say R5 looking, originally it was an R5 and Filoni being Filoni was like, <laughs> let's just make it R5, pulled some over to paint him. Yeah, that scene is so to great. To look like, like R5 as if he never, I know. Put some oil, put yeah, yeah. grease and oil right there where the, yeah. where the uh, motivator blew so up. So again, attention to details. Filoni was like, here's where the bad motivator is duck it up, make it look like he was fixed, and he never left Tatooine. So thank goodness for Filoni getting R5 in Mos Eisley. Most underrated Star Wars character. Yeah. <laughs> I know we talked about this on another episode too with the TIE fighter uh, landing gear, how the wings folded. That is the first time that we see it, and that is how they have always landed. We just never saw it. So Doug Chang worked on that as a concept, and this is the first time actually seeing it. So that wasn't like some new, oh, they got a new special TIE fighter or something like that. That is just how they land. We just never saw it on screen ever. And this is fun in a Galaxy's Edge kind of Batu way. The X-Wings that are in the end of uh, episode six that have all the directors in them, they didn't have a X-Wing cockpit sitting anywhere and they actually stole the one that was en route to galaxy's edge florida the actual x-wing diverted it to california and actually filmed the scenes in the x-wing cockpit and now that x-wing is in galaxy's edge in florida yeah it's cool they talk about how there was like a steel bar across there you know there's no cockpit actually in there so like going to florida in case of storms and whatever else it's reinforced with like the steel bar so they ripped it out and dropped the seat in and and made it an x-wing inside like to the t and then shipped it off when they were done so now it's sitting at galaxy's edge so dope (laughs) All right, let's move on. I love you. I know. Favorite scenes, favorite quotes from Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian. A bunch we've already talked about, but we've still, I mean, again, this list is long. So we'll just talk about some of our our true favorites. We'll just kind of say a few each, or I'll go through this and we'll, we'll each kind of call favorites. We don't have a medal ceremony for this one, but we'll try to keep it simple. Again, Nick put together a lot of these, so I happen to agree. We happen to think the same way. <laughs> Filoni telling the story about how he thought he was being pranked Yeah, when he got the call from Lucasfilm about an interview. I guess he was working on SpongeBob at the time, right? As or, it, no, he was working... He uh, thought it was the on, SpongeBob people pranking yeah, yeah. him. He was working on Avatar, the Airbender, last Airbender. He was working on yeah. It's just a great story because he, he talks about how just the word choice and his tone was like, oh, really? Mm. Oh, you're from Lucas. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, just completely. Sure. Just blowing him off. So yeah, I'd love the interview. That would be great. He's like the SpongeBob guys are at it again. But it and there was like I guess like right at the very end of the call, there were a few things that he was like, "Wait a minute. Okay, I just look. I gotta ask, who put you up to this?" And the person, <laughs> the person who called him was like, "What are you talking about?" And instantly he was like, "Uh, 
oh shit, maybe this is real. Yeah. He, he immediately switched into like fan mode. And if he hadn't already had the interview scheduled at that point, the, the person who called him actually said that that would have been like, would have been like a, no, maybe not this guy, but it was already <laughs> scheduled. So he was locked in. Um, there's a good little story about Bryce Dallas Howard. This is really cool. Actually going to Japan with her dad, Opie, Ron Howard to meet with George Lucas and Akira Kurosawa. She was five and she, she was all jet lagged and tired. And during the dinner just fell asleep. And that's her story. Like this <laughs> legendary <laughs> director and George Lucas, uh, meeting. And she's just passed out like a little kid. I fell asleep during some shit when I was a kid, but I didn't fall asleep during a meeting of George Lucas and the Karakuros. <laughs> you might have at five, though. This is true. <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy talking about George Lucas doing Indiana Jones because she was producing back then. She was involved in all that stuff. He would talk as they were making these films about advances in technology that they were making, again, out of necessity. It would give George the bug to start thinking about what he might use in future Star Wars stuff. So... Most of the Indiana Jones stuff coming in the later 80s after Star Wars, this was already kind of getting the gears turning and laying the groundwork for what he would do in the prequels and beyond. Some cool stuff about the directors going through their first experiences in Star Wars. Listening to them talk felt like we could have them on the podcast and they'd be just telling the same stories, yeah, right? just like nerding out. It's just so cool. Sure. Well, how? When? Can we? Hey, guys. Yeah. Come over. That's great. If we get Taika on this podcast, um, bro. Dude. <laughs> So speaking of that, this really like connected specifically with this podcast to me. I was like, man, we are in tune. We're playing the same song together, <laughs> talking about the Yoda scene in The Empire Strikes Back and how it went over their heads as kids, but resonated as adults. I felt like I was listening to our podcast. It yeah, was amazing. For sure. One of my favorite parts. It was really cool. I think, you know, Filoni obviously is, is such a encyclopedia of Star Wars knowledge to the point of things we won't ever get to know because he's George Lucas's right-hand man. His point of like, we all thought as kids of what the Jedi Council would look like or what who Anakin Skywalker was or whatever. George Lucas had a different vision than we did as kids. So of course the prequels were going to look a little different because... We had to, we were playing with Kenner toys in our in our backyard. We had a different thought process, and obviously none of us are George Lucas. So his thought process and what he's able to to do technology wise and just where he wanted the story to go was so much different than all of ours. So I think it's just Filoni really taking apart not only what Star Wars is, but also the ripples in the fandom of what we all perceive and what might let us down here and there is our own expectations. And I feel like Filoni, another reason to love him is that I think he's on that level. He knows that that reasoning is out there, what people might like, what people might not like. And I think that's what makes Mandalorian so successful is that he has that, that intel. He has that filter on him that he'll know, well, this isn't quite what people are expecting, but it's awesome and people will like it. Or let's give them what they expect. He has the ultimate perspective. Like he's such a fan but he's also, like you said, George's right-hand man. He has received, you know, he's that painting of God touching Adam's finger. They're both, yeah. their wieners are out, you know? <laughs> so I love those moments when you go, yeah, everything that I'm bummed about that I complain about, I should just check my shit because that's a great point. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. Also should be noted that in the gallery is where I believe the, the clip we've played of Filoni talking about Duel of the Fates and what it really means, that's where it came from. Mm -hmm. And man, what a moving moment. Definitely a favorite of mine from the series. Him just speaking about the weight of that scene. Being someone who 
struggles to view the prequels, hearing his take on the importance of those characters and that scene in the overall story is really important for everyone as a fan to understand and hear, I think. So that that was a big moment for me, just kind of staying on the Filoni thing. And then, I mean, for me, favorite-wise, like, we keep going down the list, but I, I just, the whole episode on, on the score, yeah. we don't need to break it down, honestly. Just watch the show. If you're a musician, if you're into the music and film, it's it's mind-blowing. It's such a killer, in-depth look at how a score comes to be. And specific favorite moment for me, and and for the sake of time, I can like back out after this and let you guys finish reading them off. Um, when Favreau is walking around set with his phone, basically playing like the Dropbox link file of the theme for everyone, yeah. he looks yeah. like a kid in a candy store. And I yeah. know that feeling, you know, of being a musician, being in a band, completing a piece of music and seeing someone else hear it, seeing your A&R guy or your manager or your mom and dad or whoever it is hear this piece of music you made for the first time. So, you know, I put myself in Ludwig's shoes of seeing Favreau. We get to watch it on camera of Favreau hearing the theme literally for the first time. It's in real time. You get to see it. And his like overwhelming joy with like, oh my God, this, you nailed it. Like this elevates everything. My whole vision is now elevated because of the music. And that's why I personally want to do scoring so badly because that was a moment that like made me cry just literally because I was so moved as like, yes, that's what music does to film. And to see the director, executive producer, writer of the show hear the theme song for his show for the first time in real time and watch it happen was such a favorite moment of mine. And I can only imagine what it felt like for Ludwig to be on set in the volume with his phone and, and then see Favreau walk around. Like, did you hear it? Did you hear it? Did you hear it? Which he does in on the show. So that, that was my hands down favorite moment of the whole show. There definitely is a good quote from Ludwig, you know, referencing things we've talked about, about how they don't use any of John Williams themes. He basically just said it made life easier for him that they didn't ask him to incorporate any of those things, which uh, to me would yeah. be harder, but he killed it. He crushed it. He'd made new iconic Star Wars music, but yeah. it really was interesting to hear him basically say it would have been harder to try and stick it in there. I was so moved originally by the originality of the score and the use of different instruments, the guitars and bass and, and drums and things that were sort of not your typical Star Wars sounds that I think I overlooked his ability and his talent as, you know, a scoring orchestra pieces and, and yeah. writing for that many pieces because in the show, you get to see him in the studio with the orchestra and you realize like, oh, he didn't just write he wrote this massive orchestral sprawling mm-hmm. eight episode opus. I mean, yeah, you see him flipping through the score. Yeah, and like, you, you hear know. the score when it's just the strings. And I think honestly, the strings are pushed a little farther back in the mix in a lot of places because they want it to sound different than John Williams, which is just like, you know, strings and, and brass in your face. Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of these other elements sort of more upfront, but seeing and hearing the orchestra singled out in the show was like, Oh, Oh no, you did that. Like, you know what I mean? Like you got to hear the level in the, in the, um, I guess the intricacies of, of his scoring that I thought he was already, I already was like, wow, this guy is amazing. He's su- super original. It has that kind of feeling of when Trent Reznor dropped on the scene of film scoring and bringing like all these new sounds and ideas. Mm-hmm. It, it had that immediately, but I had no idea until I watched the show, how expansive his talent was as far as scoring the orchestra as well. The man's damn good. 
damn good. Can't wait for Friday. Here's some more. Couple more things. I mean, one one thing for me because I'm like just being a dog dad. I'm just I'm completely intoxicated by big eyed little animals. The concept of Baby Yoda. We talked about it being kind of tricky to settle in. It was either too ugly or too cute. But the one image, and this is, I mean, if you do a search, a Google search for Baby Yoda, you actually see this concept image. They were all just like, yep, that's the one. It's the, he's in his little suit. He's kind of looking up. It's kind of shot from above. They call it a flight suit. Yeah, it looks like a a chunk of a flight suit just wrapped around the baby. And they nailed it. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to call many of those other ones ugly. Some of them weren't as cute, but man. Talk about, like we said this earlier, number one, the irony of a cute thing being the unifying yeah. thing, <laughs> but also just, man, it's hard to overstate how, how much they just like nailed it. Yeah. This is a, you know, a thing about a gunslinger. It's like this, you talk about the 45 seconds in, in empire that made this whole world, but it's as much about baby Yoda as anything else. And there's of course all the, the memes that that fact precipitated, but it, Baby Yoda is probably my favorite thing in the whole thing. <laughs> and when you see those renderings of, it's funny how they all have Yoda, but as a viewer, even I was like, yeah, oh yeah, Un- undeniably that's the one. Mm-hmm. And then just the drawings, the one that when they finally say, you know, then we got this drawing, there's no question between yeah. that one and the others. It just, it's right. Everything about it was right. And the, and when you see it on screen, it looks pretty much identical to that drawing. So I just whoever did that drawing, that rendering, I'm, I'm sure you're pretty stoked. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you created a legend on your <laughs> iPad. And dude, we didn't mention this, but showing the the practical animatronic stuff and the puppeteering of, of Baby Yoda, even with the little bars connected to his hands and everything, there's never a moment where I'm like, no, that's fake. I'm as captivated with all the shit attached to him and everything as I am seeing him in the episode on screen. It's unreal what they can accomplish with a few people and some rods and some controllers. It's just magic feels like actual magic all right there's some really good quotes in here for the sake of time we're just gonna kind of run through these bryce dallas howard had a great one she said this is not about my relationship with star wars this is about like all of our relationship with star wars hopefully when when folks watch the mandalorian they'd feel our commitment to star wars to the incredible story that this is can please every keyboard warrior hater just read that a couple times in a row. <laughs> it's so real. Yeah, and then go out and try to make something on your own. Yeah. <laughs> Taika Watiti said, this whole series, though there's humorous moments, it's a serious story, and it fits perfectly within Star Wars canon. It doesn't take itself 100% seriously, but it does believe in itself, which is like the best way to describe what Star Wars humor and that balance should be. And that dude, I mean, talk about balance of humor and, and drama. That dude, he's a magician. I cannot wait to see what else he gets to do with Star Wars because yes. it seems like they're teeing him up big to take on a role. Dave Filoni said, George created this universe. The Millennium Falcon, Chewbacca, Yoda. I mean, all these things, Darth Vader, all came out of his brain. And you just need to tap into that to stay true to kind of what this is and do what George did, which was constantly find new ways to tell these stories. Which is what they're doing with this. I mean, yeah, they've completely they've completely reinvented Star Wars. It's 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 mental while staying also absolutely faithful yeah. to its origins. This show is an absolute home run grand slam. I mean, there's just nothing wrong with it, and that is so rare in entertainment, especially in massive mainstream pop culture entertainment. Truly, it's so rare. Ryan, read this Werner Herzog. Well, hold on, I'll do it for real. 
Does everyone give me shit for my German accent? Fantasy has no bounds. There's no boundaries in what you can do here with the new technologies. It's simply extraordinary and much to my liking. <laughs> Werner. Uh, Pedro Pascal said, we're all going to be second fiddle to this little guy. That's how cool he is. Talking about Baby Yoda. Truth. Yeah. So That's you just true. get the sense that they knew. They knew what they had. That just makes me think of the meme with Adam Driver from Marriage Story, the, you know, the screaming meme. Yeah. <laughs> and it's with Baby Yoda. And it's like, I am Star Wars now. You know, <laughs> John Favreau, this is really poignant as well, said, everyone has different opinions about which movies they like better or characters or lines of dialogue or storylines. Everybody who loves Star Wars, they may have their opinions about it, you know, the specificities of it, but everyone is in agreement that the music is iconic and perfect. Yeah, that came from the score episode. I mean, and he's not wrong. <laughs> never a truer word was spoken. And that brings us to the end. I didn't expect this episode to be so long, but I did. We're nerds. And this, <laughs> this is a show made for nerds. This is true. Quick, just real fast trailer tomorrow. Season two premieres. I said, you know, I watched the trailer just as we were pressing record. Is the uh, the woman in the hood? I said, is she a Jedi? Adam's like, is she Sith? Nick said, is she an Inquisitor? I mean, there is so much to look forward to. Um, and the only thing I want to say is, I, I don't know. There's been like a lot of rumors, I think, flying around about whether this season is going to be more detached, you know, episode to episode or more connected. And I don't think anybody really knows. I think that's all online banter. Am, am I wrong in mm -hmm. that thinking? No. The trailer yeah. to me really gives the vibe that it's going to be much more connected than season one. Yeah. I would personally be very stoked on that, but I also was not bummed in any way by season one. So if it maintains the same sort of, there's a through line, but each episode is its own adventure. I'm, I'm down with that. But the yeah. trailer does it, don't you guys agree? It, it definitely throws the vibe of that. It's like a very involved, intense, singular story. And that's, that's what they pitch with the trailer. Yeah. Like bigger scope, but more serialized. Yeah. Which I prefer for sure. Interested to see how that plays out. I would prefer that. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to see, you know, if the rumors are true on, on which side. I mean, I'm fully down to be wrong. I felt like those outlier episodes in season one were kind of just setting the pace for like, hey, sometimes you're going to tune in and it's the story's not going to advance, but I'd rather be wrong and it be an actual serialized full season from here on out. I mean, dude, if you're starting to bring in Jedi, and dude, yeah. there's not a lot of room in my mind as a writer to go off on tangents for a random yeah. adventure. I mean, we're starting to hone in on some serious, heavy <laughs> weighted story arcs, it seems like. And man, I just, to see how excited they all were in the gallery, everyone working on this show, I feel like we're about to watch some content that is going to be absolutely earth shattering. It's funny. The Ringer a podcast network and, and website that I frequent. I had an article that was headlined something like, is there enough content in The Mandalorian to have longevity or some kind of crap like that? And I didn't even click the thing. I was just like, <laughs> for real? Next. Like, dude, we're talking about like finding out about Yoda's species. We're getting into like deep Jedi lore. Like we're connecting all these different, it's not just about this dude in a helmet. This thing could go on for 20 seasons as far as I'm concerned. What if Cal gets to be in it at some point? What if there's a live action Cal? Yeah, Dude, why not? Same actor, like all the animated series stuff that's coming in, like the groundwork is like fully there. I mean, the finale, look at it. There, there you go. We're bringing Clone Wars to live action. So tomorrow, dude, man. here we go. Oh man, I'm so pumped. All right, let's wrap this up with a quote of the week. Here we go. Ryan Key hit us with some good stuff. 
very stoked to read this um, because of a moment I spoke about in this episode uh, that really moved me uh, when Gina was speaking to Carl about how moved she was by his performance and his presence on set. Never really thought about what a legend he might be, I think just because I wasn't given the opportunity to, but watching him at a round table for four hours, I'm sold. The guy is an absolute class act. You know, he's amazing on the show. And to see the respect that the other people in the room have for him, it was really, really freaking cool and a testament to the casting on the show. And man, I can't wait. I can't wait for tomorrow. Let's go. All right. Quote of the week, Carl Weathers. It's kind of remarkable that a creative force has the foresight and the understanding of something that I didn't quite get when I was in my early 20s. I think I was in search of something that already existed, but for many of us, the more we studied or grew or became maybe a little more evolved, we could relate to what George Lucas was saying in a movie. That was about so much more than what the movie appeared to be about. Apollo Creed. (laughs) Shows Peterson. Damn it, I was laughing, I couldn't say it. (laughs) Damn alligator bit my hand off. Uh, legend. He got me. I tore one of that bastard's eyes out, though. <laughs> Look at that. Here we are 40 years later with a podcast about it. Just he's, you know, that's some insight right there. Oh, yeah. All right, boys. Enjoy tomorrow. Yes. I love you. Same. Love you guys. May the force be freaking with you. Have a cocktail, some popcorn. I can't wait to talk to you guys about it after. If you're looking for the podcast on social media, you can find us on Instagram at ThankTheMakerPod, on Twitter at ThankTheMaker1. My personals are all at Adam the Skull. At William Ryan Key. Instagram and Twitter is at Nick Bayside. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, may the Force be with you. Thank you.